recently, um, something that uh, a pastor, he's, he's, a, he's a lot older than me, and um, he said something that's it's been causing me to, to think quite a bit. And he was talking specifically about how he had uh, raised his children. Um, and I'm not going to uh, give specifics of what he said, but really what was causing me to think was this idea that as a parent, all right, as a parent, that I might have some influence over what my daughter's goals and identity uh, would be like uh, even later in life. That if I stressed, for example, uh, career and academics, that maybe in a, in, in a way there's a good chance that if I stress that and stress that and stress that enough, that that would be also the focus of her life. Uh, and not only while she's living in, under our roof, but even later in life. If I stress, for example, family, that that would be, that there's a chance, an opportunity, that that might become something that becomes very important to her. And that that would take primacy maybe over, say, for example, career. Or if I stressed, and really in, in our home, or if, if it was about faith, that that could be something. And so, you know, and it, and it you know, and the reason why stuff like that makes me think is because, you know, you, you leave that, that place thinking, well, what is it that as a parent, you know, I kind of stress as our family's identity. You know, what, what's going to define our household? I mean, you know, when you talk about the O residents, you know, what are the things we do at our house? What are the things we live for? What are the things we pursue? What kind of example have I been setting as a, as a dad? Because, right? you know, when I'm at home, you know, no one calls me pastor. Right? My wife, <laughs> she doesn't, trust me. <laughs> she looks at me just the way most wives looks at, looks at, you know, look at their husbands, you know. And, and my daughter looks at me the way most ch children look at their, their parents. And the reason why I bring that up is because I, I really feel like we get to Second John here. It's the second letter. We're going through this series. It's one of those, these uh, pages in your Bible. It's like really easy to miss, right? It's really short. There's not even chapters. You, you know, it's just Second John, and then it's a little weird because there's no chapter one, chapter two. It's just a few verses here, but it's short. But it's, but man, it, there, there's a lot of stuff in here. And and what I want to do today, all right, is I want to try to show you guys that I think in the verses we read, there's a lot that pours out of John's heart um, regarding the identity or culture or focus or goal, however you want to describe it, of, of the church that he's writing to. And the two things, all right, the two things that I think he wants the church to understand is that the church has to be a community of truth, all right, that that has to be one of the things, truth, one of the pillars, and it's a community of love, that that's the second pillar, all right, truth and love. Now, I want you to think back to what I consider a very, very interesting moment in history. And it's, sometimes it's really weird for me to think about this, but it, it's the trial of Jesus. Okay? And it's, it's, it's his second trial. Jesus actually had two trials. He had a, a trial before the Jewish religious leaders, and then he had a second trial, a trial before sort of the Roman leaders, uh, so you could think of it as the Jewish court and the Roman court. And it, 
when he was in front of the Jewish religious leaders, the charge that was brought against him was blasphemy, right? He was charged with blasphemy, which in their minds was punishable by death. And we know there was a lot of stuff going on, and it wasn't just, you know, there was emotions. The, the leaders really <laughs> disliked Christ because of his message and what he was doing, and they felt like he was really undermining them. And yeah, they wanted, they wanted to pursue the death penalty, but unfortunately in the first century, the Jewish court had lost the power all right, to try anyone uh, for the death penalty. Just they had lost that power. So even though in their court and in their minds, they're like, yeah, he blasphemed God, he is guilty of death, they had no actual power to carry out that sentence. And so they were forced to bring him to the Roman court. That's why we find in the Gospels the, the telling of Jesus coming before Pilate is because the Roman court was the only court that, at that time that, in that place that actually had the power to say, all right, you are guilty of death. And you know, what's interesting is that the Roman court was known as a very highly developed legal system. And it was very procedural. I don't know if there's any attorneys in here, but you had to follow the procedure. You had to follow the ways of that court, of that legal system. And there had to be a charge. And so when, when the Jewish religious leaders, you know, they're like, yeah, you know, kill him, he's guilty, he's blasphemed God, and they bring him before Pilate, and they're like, you know, he, he deserves to die. Pilate asked a very simple question, all right, what's the charge? What's really interesting is that, and if you look at Luke 23 too, the charge is very different from what the charge was in the Jewish court, right? In the Jewish court, it was blasphemy. But they realized that's not a crime in the Roman system of government. If they said, oh yeah, he blasphemed God, you know, Pilate would be like, what? We can't kill him for that. There's no rules that he actually broke. So the charge is, you know what? He misled our nation. He is forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. He's saying that he's the king. So what is the charge? High treason against Caesar. Now that is something that is punishable by death. So now picture with me Pilate who... History has not portrayed as a sensible, great man, all right? But now Christ is standing before Pilate, and Pilate has this responsibility, this decision that I would never, ever want, right? I mean, you have this court, and if he is found guilty of this charge, then death penalty. So he does ask Jesus, hey, is this, is this true? Are you the king of the Jews? In verse 33 of John 18. And, you know, Jesus' response is, look, look <laughs> my kingdom is not of this world. And he goes on to describe the difference between his kingdom and the worldly kingdoms or the Jewish kingdom. And so Pilate, not quite clear, verse 37, he says, look, are you a king? You say that I'm a king, and this is Jesus' response, and listen carefully. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. All right? You say I'm a king, but listen up. I've come here for a purpose, to bear witness to the truth. 
Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And in response, Pilate says, man, what is truth? Right? What is truth? Many people have written about the response of Pilate. There's a certain cynicism, there's a certain doubt, there's a certain maybe even frustration with Jesus' answer. But Jesus has plainly said, and you know, John, he wants to bring this out. He uses truth, the Greek word truth, more than anyone, any other writer of the, the other gospels. He, he is clearly trying to, really he's sort of got this idea. One of his goals is he wants people who read his letter to understand. All right, Jesus has come to tell the truth. He has come to reveal the truth. He has come to talk about the truth. And anyone who doesn't listen to his voice, right, how much clearer can he be when he says, look, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. But Pilate's response, look, maybe you don't relate to Pilate. Maybe we don't understand what it means to try and protect the interests of Caesar. Is Jesus guilty of high treason or not? Or even trying to have that responsibility. But one thing that does stand out, his response to Jesus' words in many ways describes the response of the modern man, right? What is truth? This idea that maybe truth is unknowable, you can't grasp it, it's kind of a, a vague concept, we can't accurately describe it, no one will know it. Or maybe there is no such thing as truth, and maybe it's not some objective thing, but it's a subjective thing, so it's not about knowing what the one true story of truth is, but it's about what makes me feel right. What is truth? And you know, so now jumping back to our passage here in 2 John, you look at this, you look at it from right from the beginning, all right? He's writing to, you know, I know it says to the elect lady and her children, but I think um, many commentators have, have shown that what John is doing is he's writing to a congregation, he's writing to a church, Right? Not to, probably, most likely, not to a specific woman and her children. But the lady would be the church, her children would be the members of that congregation. All right? And from right at the get-go, he says, look, I love in truth. And not only I, but all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and, I will, and, and will be with us forever. And even at the end of verse 3, he says, again, in truth and love. So right away, what he does is he says, look, there is this community that is defined by what? Truth. And I think it goes back to John's understanding of what Jesus said before Pilate. That Jesus says, the purpose I came was to reveal, to teach, to show Demonstrate the truth. There is this knowable truth. There is this objective truth. And the source of that truth is not from below, but it's from above. And that defines the community of believers. Robert uh, Yarbrough, in his commentary, sums up this definition of truth as, God, as, as John is using it specifically here. He says, look, truth refers then to the gospel of Jesus Christ, its implications, the sphere of eternal life into which the gospel ushers those who embrace it. 
So one of the things about being a part of a congregation, a Christian church, a church that hears the gospel, understands the gospel, lives the gospel, is that we can say, look, there is truth. The gospel is true. It is real. It is valid. That uh, Jesus coming to earth, Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus resurrecting from the dead, Jesus' forgiveness of sins and all the benefits we receive from the work of Christ through faith is true. And that's our community. This is the church. You know, I remember um, when I was in college just a couple of years ago, There was, <laughs> some people are smiling. Yeah, you know, it wasn't that long ago, all right? 1991 was when I entered into college, all right? And, um, you, know, there, you know, college is an interesting place. And for me, at least personally, and I don't know what it was like for, for, for you guys or whatever, but at, this was the first time in my life where I really felt the burden to, to sort of think for myself. You know, I was born into a, 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 a really strong, uh, paternal, dominated family where kind of like my father really forced upon anyone who would listen, his opinions, his thoughts, his beliefs. And one of the things he really emphasized was the Christian faith. You know, he... He really hammered it home, and he, if he, it was kind of like, if you live in this house, you live according to what he thought the Bible taught. And so when I finally moved out from that home, you know, I don't know why I thought this, but I thought, man, this is my first opportunity to really like try and develop something on my own, to develop my own convictions, my own faith, and not my dad's, because <laughs> he would beat me if I didn't agree to what he said. Just a joke, sort of. <laughs> if you know, then you know. If you don't, then you don't. Just, it's a joke. <laughs> All right? Um, and, you know, yeah, and so I, I, I remember being this guy who I just wanted to read, I wanted to pursue, I wanted to listen. I was like a sponge, but I would take in so many things, I got really confused. And I remember at that time, it was really weird because it, I almost felt like no one could really claim that they were right. They kind of had to kind of like say, yeah, you know, this is what's been good for me. Let, me. let me tell you what's been good for me. This is my story of faith. And someone else would be like, no, you know what, this is what was, what's been good for me. So I, I've had conversations with what I would call new age guys. You know, and those are some of the best conversations, right? Because I can't even understand what they're saying. Right? The energy and all of that. And it's like, oh, this is too, this is too. And I would always walk away thinking, ah, I can't be new age. I'm not smart enough. <laughs> or I'm not hip, hip enough, I guess. I don't know, whatever. I talked to Buddhists. I've talked to Muslims. Talked to many different kinds of Christians. But really, it was funny. It was like this, almost like no one could really say they were right because it was like, oh, I don't want to be offensive. Right? 
you know, and it, I, I went through a few years there where I just had so many like confusing thoughts and doubts. And, and then finally, I, I remember thinking, you know what? Everyone can't be right. When Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, either he's right or he's wrong. Right? Either he's right or he's wrong. One of the main reasons why I decided uh, late in my college career to put a hold, and it's still on hold, <laughs> my pursuit of genetic engineering is still on hold, you guys. Let's see. Uh, probably never going back to that. And deciding to go to seminary was because I wanted to pursue biblical studies. I wanted to know, look, this may be the most important book out there because this is one of those books that will actually not only affect the quality of my life today, but will affect the quality of my life for eternity, right? This is the one book that has that power because either it's right or it's wrong. And it's not about how it makes me feel. It's not about whether I, I've benefited from it. It's not about whether I enjoyed it and it's given me a certain like relaxation in life or a certain way to deal with problems. Or it's not about like, yeah, when bad things happen, now I have this hope and that, you know, and, and you know, when bad things happen to you, you need your own different kind of hope, but I have my hope. No, it's either right or it's wrong. And so I went to seminary and you know what I was convinced of and that yeah man I there's a reason why this book has survived every challenge every challenge there have been men smarter than me who have challenged the truth in this book and at the end it's always come out untouched so that if you're a part of the church, you live in truth. And the truth abides in you, not just today, but forever. Amen? There's this confidence and trust that as Christians we can have. And you know what? If you don't have it, that's not necessarily a bad thing because now you can pursue this journey of truth. And that's one of the reasons why at Crossway we, 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 we try to offer some of the things we, we can offer because it's not something that, you know, you could, if you expect to be able to sit down for a 10-minute meeting with one of your pastors and he answers every question, well, those pastors don't exist at our church. You know, Paul, myself, John, Steve, those are, that's not our gifting. <laughs> but over time... If we're faithful to just studying the word, if we're faithful to saying from cover to cover, from beginning to end, we're going we're gonna to try our best to open this up, to explain it, to show how it points to Christ, then at the end, I do believe with all of my heart that we will have this confidence that the Bible is true, the word is true, and that this is a community of truth. That's why it's one of the principles, the main principles of Crossway Church. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting, right? Because right away he says, look, I love in truth. It, one way to understand that in verse 1 is to say, you know what? All right. I love you truly. All right? That's one way to try to understand the original language there. I love you truly. But I, I think everyone says, no, that is clearly not his intention. Because when you see what he says after that, not only I, but also all who know the truth. So he, now he expands it. 
And he says, even all these other people who know the truth. So he's saying, look, there is this love we have because we're all part of what? This one truth. And so the second thing that I think John clearly wants the church to hear, to understand, and to pursue is that when we know the truth, it pushes us to also do what? Love. That there's a consequence to this. Truth in our lives. It's not that truth causes us to uh, have some kind of intellectual superiority. It's not that we, now we understand and so we can escape into a bubble and just think we know the truth. No, it's truth that forces us to act. Verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Walking in the truth. Walking in the truth is a metaphor that, yeah, you don't just know the truth, you live the truth, right? Just as we were commanded by the Father... And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, just in case you're not clear by now what I'm talking about, all right? Walking in truth. He says it, that we love one another. He says, look, this is, this is not new. And if you've been at our church the last few weeks, this is not new because we've been going through 1 John, right, for many weeks. And what have we been hearing over and over and over again from 1 John? We have to love. And just in case you're like, ah, what is love? (laughs) Right? There's the age-old question that Pilate presented, what is truth? And maybe you, ah, what is love? Well, John says, look, verse uh, 6, this is love. That we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning. So that you should walk in it. So in, its, in a way, he's uh, pointing out the relationship that exists between law and love. J. Ligon Duncan, he has a great quote on this. He says this, Christians are to love, all right? And he gets a little bit, a lot of words here, as an act of glad and joyful and grateful and willing obedience to God's word. And we are to live in accordance with God's word as an expression of and as an act of love. Now, if I were to really simplify that, what he's saying is that, look, Christians are to love as an act of obedience, and we're to obey as an act of love. Get it? That's what he's saying. Christians are to love as an act of obedience to God's word, and we're to what? Obey as a response to what? Love. You guys, did you guys like that quote? I don't know. Some of you don't seem too impressed. Let it sink in. It's a good one. But this is what John was talking about when he says, look, um, you know, I'm writing to you this commandment, and, and, you know, it's that we love one another, but this is love, that we walk according to the commandments. And when he talks about love, he can't talk about, uh, he can't help but to talk, lead into obedience. And when he talks about obeying the law, he can't help but talking about love. It's like you can't separate the two. And I think this is important because sometimes the temptation does exist for us to want to separate the two. That, no, Christianity is about just love on one hand. Or maybe, nah, Christianity is just about uh, the law and obedience on one hand. No, you, you can't have one without the other. Right? 
this commandment to love is not really based on feelings and emotions, but it's based on action and sacrifice uh, and service. I remember growing up, my sister and I, my younger sister, who's not here right now, which is awesome, because I could talk a little bit more freely. You know what, if I'm completely honest with you guys, I was a terrible older brother, terrible. I mean, some of the things I did was very mean. You know, I, I took her toys, I would crush them, destroy them, because I didn't want her playing with dolls so we could play like with uh, trucks and cars together. You know, I, I just, I, I didn't have a brother, so I, you know, I, I would do things. We used to play ping pong uh, because she wanted to play ping pong, but I wouldn't play with her unless there was something on the line. And it was usually like who would have power over the remote for the com coming week. And of course, I'm older, so I would beat her. And I'd be like, all right, I get the power of the TV controls for like a week. Ultimately, she, she was like, I know it's kind of sad, but I had won so many ping pong games with her that even at, when we're in elementary school, I had won power of what we watch on TV. Because we had one TV. That's how it was done back then. I had power of control until college. That's terrible, right? That's the kind of older brother I was. And I remember, so we would get into a lot of fights, and you know, my dad, he had the burden of trying to like, you know, but he would always tell me one thing, hey, you gotta love your sister. You gotta love your sister. And at that time, I didn't understand what that meant because I thought that, man, I had to have good warm feelings for her. Like I had to think of her as a great person. I had to think of my sister as this very lovable person. And I just didn't think of my sister in that way, even though she was, because I was just such a mean guy. My heart had nothing warm in there for my sister. I just thought of her as the person that lived in the other room and, you know, you know, she would always tell on me or something. So I had these weird, you know, and, you know, and then my dad's always telling me, you got to love her, you got to love her. Well, what he was trying to tell me was what? That as the older brother, I had to serve her. That I had to sacrifice for her that I had to have actions of love for her. And this is what John is saying to the Christian community. Look, I don't expect, and John didn't expect, and there's not a pastor in the world that expects every single member of their congregation to have these great, warm, fuzzy feelings about each other. But the Bible does expect us to what? To serve one another to treat each other a certain way, actions of love. Some people would uh, uh, complain about that. You know, it's not genuine, it's not real, it's not authentic. How can, how can we do that? It's just fake. But, you know, all right. Look, there's a book that Tim Keller wrote about marriage. All right? And he says, if you base everything you do on your life based on how you feel, all right, that's going to be really bad. Because our feelings are what? Like this. Up and down, they're inconsistent, they're all over the place. Sometimes you feel like you want to murder someone. Sometimes you feel like you're just in love and cloud nine. Sometimes you feel great. And all of these little things that happen in our life has powerful effects on our feelings. And he says, you know what, maybe we don't have power over how we feel, but we, what we do have power over is how we act. So, uh, uh, wives, 
Even if you don't feel in love with your husband that particular morning because he did something that really annoyed you, you should still act like you're in love. And he says, it's a mistake to, 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 to misunderstand this, but he says, actions of love will and can lead to feelings of love. All right, thank you. You're welcome, husbands. And, you know, of course, vice versa is also true. Even though, you know, you're, you're angry with one another, you can actually act with the proper actions of love, and that would lead to feelings of love. And that's, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about being a community because of the truth that Jesus Christ revealed to us, a community that would love. Amen? I think the application of this is very simple. Right? It's to leave this room and do what? To be convinced of the truth of Jesus Christ. And if you're not convinced, you need to pursue that convincing through the study of God's word, through to talking to, to Christians and leaders, and, and to pursue that, not to just think it's an easy path for some of us, but yeah, it, it's a very attainable thing. But that would lead us to what? Why? It's so important to pursue that because that is what leads us to love one another. And we're not talking about just these weird, warm, fuzzy feelings. We're talking about actions. Like if Pastor Paul stands up in front of you guys and he produces four wonderfully colored sheets of paper, and it's called Love OC, right? And on the back of those sheets, it tells you what some of these people who you know, are in different situations than us are requesting, are saying these are items of need. Well, an action of love based on truth would be to know who Christ is, what Christ has done for you. Because think about this. What has Christ done for us? People, are we deserving of his life and his love and his sacrifice? Ah, you know, no, no way. And yet he still claims us as his children. There's that mercy and grace and amazing joy that is found in the gospel message. But now we're not supposed to just keep it bottled up in our hearts. Now we go out. And we love O.C. And if there's people that know, don't know this amazing truth, what do we do? We take those cards that have four different designs, just in case you're wondering. And we say, hey, man, come to church on Good Friday. Come to church on Easter. And guess what? It's not that hard to invite a non-Christian to church. They say 50% of Americans feel compelled anyways to attend church on Easter Sunday. For whatever reason. Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, if they come, yeah, they're going to hear the truth. Amen? Just the last thing I want to encourage you guys with, it's not just the message of truth that remains, abides in us and remains with us forever. It's that Christ himself remains with us forever. The bringer of truth. Truth himself. Amen? And the greatest lover of our lives and souls will be with us forever. Amen? That's the truth we need to get out there. That's the truth that binds us together. That's the truth that leads us to love one another. Let's pray. Dear Only Father, we thank you for um, just your reminder of 
the community that we are, Lord, the, this fellowship that we have here. And more than being defined by where we live or what we do, etc., we're defined by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this gospel compels us to love one another. And we ask for your help in this. We ask for your Holy Spirit to really convict us of this and lead us in this, that we would be a church of truth and love, Lord. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This time, Lord,